Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. The last month, we read The Ride of a Lifetime, a 2019 memoir by Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney. It begins by relaying Iger's time climbing the corporate ladder and then does a deep dive into his 15 years as the company's CEO with a focus on the acquisitions and many mergers that occurred during his tenure. Okay, before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. I'm Olson Hart. I'm an entrepreneur, and I lost a lot of money in the stock market today. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science, and I lost a lot of money on the stock market today, too. We're recording on March 9th, 2020, and this was the largest fall in the stock market since the financial crisis in 2008. Wow. Okay, so our book this month is about Disney, and it's really, really successful CEO, Bob Iger. Who is Bob Iger, and what's the current news about Bob Iger? The current news about Bob Iger is that he recently stepped down, I believe, as CEO of Disney, uh, well advanced of the uh, his retirement date that he was supposed to stay on to until, and is now, I believe, just the executive chairman. And uh, it, I, as far as I know, there's not really a stated reason as to why he did that. Could have been because of the ongoing coronavirus update. I don't know. Yeah. So Bob Iger grew up in Oceanside, Long Island. His father worked in advertising and transferred agencies a lot. He also, his father suffered from manic depression and even underwent electroshock therapy. Bob was a decent student, but was not really focused on academics and always was working. He went to Ithaca College, where he mentions also working at Pizza Hut. And then his first job out of college was briefly as a weatherman at an Ithaca station before he joined, I believe it was a local NYC uh, ABC affiliate in uh, 1974 as a studio supervisor. So it was an entry-level position where he was earning $150 per week. He worked his way up through the sports division in ABC, where he worked under Rune Arledge. He eventually became the head of ABC Entertainment and then president of ABC Network Television, which he was in that position when Capital Cities acquired ABC in 93. In 96, Disney acquired Capital Cities ABC. And in 1999, Michael Eisner made him the president of Walt Disney International, where he uh, took control of uh, what was basically a fragmented international business. And then ultimately in 2000, he was named president and COO of Disney, making him the heir apparent to Michael Eisner. In 2005, Iger became the CEO of Disney, uh, which he remained in until, as we just mentioned, February 25th, uh, when he stepped down. I believe he still retains creative direction for the brand for now through his retirement date in 2021. And under his watch, Disney acquired Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, Bam Tech, uh, large portions of Fox, and the Disney market cap increased about 5x in his 15 years from about $50 billion to about $250 billion. So he was CEO of Disney from 2005. From 1984 until 2005, the CEO of Disney was Michael Eisner. What would, did Michael Eisner accomplish during his time at Disney, and what were some challenges that Eisner ran into that Iger had to rectify when he became CEO? Yeah, so when Eisner first joined in 1984, he had a real golden decade. The The next 10 years of Disney uh, spawned a lot of their great animation successes. 
the Little Mermaid, uh, Aladdin, the uh, Lion King, etc. They had a whole string of uh, incredibly successful movies. Then the later part of his career was a little bit more of a struggle. He did expand globally, which was important, although Iger kind of indicates that they didn't do it in a very like thoughtful way. They kind of just uh, outsourced a lot to local companies and didn't really you know keep control of the brand. And but they did open Disney World, or you know I forget what it was called. It's Paris Disney now, but uh, Euro Disney did some of the the expansion of the brand, and then they really struggled on the content side for animation. So I believe they lost about four hundred million dollars in the the sort of last decade of Eisner's career on Disney animation. They did manage to start to distribute Pixar films, and so those had been quite successful. But towards the tail end of his career, they were really struggling. Steve Jobs was really upset with Disney and threatening not to work with them anymore. And so that was one thing that uh, Bob Iger was very focused on as he took the reins. Kopech, are there other things you were thinking of for Eisner's career? I would also add in that ABC itself began struggling during those second 10 years in that it went from being the number two cable network after NBC to falling below CBS and even being threatened by the rising star in Fox to even perhaps fall even further than that. So they were struggling both on the animation side, they were struggling a little bit from ABC, and I think the parks, though, were going okay. So Bob Iger becomes CEO in this environment with with these challenges that Eisner had been facing. Do you feel that he was really prepared for those challenges? Like had his previous career through ABC and then at Disney under Eisner, basically being Eisner's number two, prepare him well to be the CEO of Disney? I think so. He'd had a lot of executive positions. He'd been very close to uh, sort of CEO positions or CEO akin positions for, you know, large businesses for, you know, probably a good decade at that point when he did take over. I think he was expecting to become the CEO of ABC and Capital Cities when ultimately Cap Cities sold the, the business over to Disney. And so it was a little bit of a step down for him in some ways, but he also talks about the fact you know, how lucky he is. He never could have been the CEO of Disney had Disney not chosen to acquire the company that he was working for. So he had a long tenure in leadership positions, but the business of Disney was very complex and a lot of it had been entirely under Michael Eisner's control. So it wasn't like he, there was a lot that he had to learn as he came in as well, I guess. I would say in totality, uh, probably wasn't super prepared to be the CEO of Disney. It's hard to be prepared to be the CEO of Disney. But to David Short's point, I think Warren Buffett said that two of the best guys he ever worked with were the guys who founded Capital Cities, Tom Murphy and some other guy whose name I don't remember. Damn. And uh, he worked with them extensively. And I imagine that um, some of their wisdom rubbed off on him. But in general, I think I would think that going from being like career executive to being the person in charge of strategy subject to the board's approval is like a pretty big challenge. And I, 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 you know, I've never really worked in a big corporation, but I don't know how often you get to think about the big picture as you move up that corporate ladder, which is why I think that kind of in general, he was probably underprepared accepting his experience with uh, the capital cities guys. Yeah, I would just add to that, that Tom and Dan, who were his bosses when he was high up at Capital Cities, were people who liked to delegate. And that was something that he said in the book he took away from that experience was that it was important to let people make their own mistakes, but also have their own successes and not to centrally plan every little bit. 
And Eisner, he mentions, was very much a central planner. And in fact, there was a group at Disney that developed under Eisner called the like Strategy Planning Committee. And it eventually came to have many business analysts on it. I think he said it had 65 people at its height when he took over, when Iger took over as CEO. And one of the first things he did, which came from his learning from Tom and Dan at Cap Cities, was to dismantle that centralized strategy committee and return a lot of power to uh, individual departments instead of making everything centrally planned and then use it more as they, he kept some of the strategy planning committee as a team to help him figure out what's a good acquisition, what's a good target for, for Disney to acquire. So that was one area where he was well prepared by his earlier experience, knowing what to not do that Eisner maybe had been doing. Yeah, I think there are actually two major reorganizations that he goes through uh, with Disney. So one uh, is the one that you're just talking about when he first joins well, not first joins, but first as appointed CEO, he basically says, we're not going with strat planning anymore. We're going to drop that from you know 65 to, I think, 12 people and let the guy who was in charge quit because that guy had been essentially the most influential person next to Eisner at that point because basically everything had to run through him on what got approved. And, and he said, we need to move a lot faster. We need to be a lot more nimble in this environment, and I need to trust my people. And so I'm going to give them a lot more authority to make decisions themselves. Uh, and this strategic planning stuff, uh, like, like Kopak was just talking about, got turned into a explore acquisitions arm. And then later on, after the Fox acquisition, he did another sort of re-architecture where he talks about being at a whiteboard and thinking about the the content assets, the sort of distribution and technology assets, and then the, what did he call it? It was just like parks and goods or something, which that one felt like a little bit strange and haphazard and just sort of like driven by what Disney and Fox happen to have a lot of than like a sort of core strategic vision, but was also an interesting you know indicator of, of how he, he ended up mixing things up and, and ultimately how he left the business. So the first half of the book is focused on Iger's kind of rise to power. And the second half of the book is about his time as CEO. And his time as CEO is totally dominated by acquisitions. So I thought one thing we could do is kind of go through each of those acquisitions one by one, as he does in the book. Each acquisition basically gets its own chapter and talk about why they did the acquisition and what the outcome was and how strategically it played out. So the first major acquisition that Iger made was Pixar. And we mentioned earlier that Eisner had started to struggle with the Pixar relationship at the end of his tenure. So how did Iger go about convincing Steve Jobs to sell Pixar to Disney? So he was pretty upfront about it in that he basically right after it was announced that he was the CEO, he knew that they were struggling. And I don't know that he had even necessarily considered the acquisition right at that moment, but he, he it was like literally the first call he made, maybe even before it was announced, was to to Steve Jobs to let him know that he was going to be the CEO and that, you know, he hoped that they could work together. So he tried to build that relationship. And I think that's that's really the the key to it is he talks extensively about really Steve Jobs being a close friend of his, that he was one of, you know, only 20 people or something that was at the actual funeral of Steve Jobs that they really did become, you know, quite close. And they would talk, I think on, I forget, it was like Saturday evenings or something like that. So every week they would, you know, have a phone call and whatnot. Um, once the acquisition goes through, Steve Jobs actually becomes the largest shareholder of Disney and then uh, sits on the board of Disney. And so does become quite an important advisor as, you know, one of the uh, most 
powerful members of the Disney board. And I don't know, were there other parts of the approach to the the acquisition that, that you thought through? I, I thought the whole story was really interesting with with Steve and um, Ed Catmull and um, the other Pixar founder, I forget his name. Um, John Lasseter. John Lasseter, that they were making sure that everyone was going to be on board, that the, this wasn't about acquiring Pixar and then trying to turn them into Disney. It was actually very much the opposite. So Ed and John were going to be put in charge of Disney animation. And it was really an opportunity to save the studio through that acquisition and really bring the sort of Pixar magic into Disney and win back the, you know, core brand of Disney, which is, you know, creating great characters and narratives for children. If I remember correctly, before he approached Jobs to buy Pixar, I, I don't remember how this came up, but basically uh, he let Jobs and Apple and iTunes distribute Disney media through iTunes. And he said that that was pretty important in terms of like regaining the trust of Jobs after the woes of the Iger years. Yeah, so they were coming out with the video iPod. So this was pre-iPhone. Oh, an yeah, iPod that could Right, that could show photos. And, no, you're absolutely right. That could show photos and videos. And he, on the spot, once he saw it with Jobs, he, he made a deal with him to try to kind of build his trust. Said, hey, we can do this. Like, don't, don't worry, I'm going to get it done. And Jobs was used to having to deal with a lot of bureaucracy with Disney under Eisner. Uh, and he was able to cut through all that bureaucracy, Iger, in just a few weeks in preparation for the launch of the video iPod and get ABC TV shows on the iPod for the launch. And so that like impressed Jobs and that's kind of how their friendship started. And so he didn't like go to Jobs and right away be like, hey, you should buy Pixar. It was more like, I know that this Pixar relationship is really critical for Disney. So I'm going to go and you know try to build a relationship with him so that then later on I can come back and you know, get to the the Pixar stuff. But he didn't, of course, know he was going to develop this great friendship with him as well. But that I'm sure that didn't hurt. Did you guys, when you're reading the part of the book about Steve Jobs's funeral, get the sense that Bob Iger had somehow managed to, to make the funeral about Bob Iger? I thought it was really strange that he included that line where, like, I think it was Steve Jobs' wife said to, Lorene said to Iger, like, uh, he really loved you or something like that. He's like, that, I love that guy. <laughs> yeah, I love that guy. Right, right, right. That was like gratuitous and unnecessary. It was like, so I don't bizarre. Think- it's like he's at the funeral and then he's like, no one wants to talk. He's like, you know what? I'll talk. I'll talk at Steve Jobs' funeral. And then after the funeral, he goes up to Steve Jobs' wife and like ends up having having her recount the story of basically like the first time that they spoke about selling Pixar. It was the first time that they went on a walk together. And it just seemed like such an odd conversation to be having. It's like a conversation about how they, everyone loves Bob Iger, how Steve Jobs loves Bob Iger when Steve Jobs is, you know, he just passed away. It's his funeral. I I don't know. I thought it was really strange. It, It was strange to include something so personal out of context like that in the book. And like, I will I'll give Iger a lot of credit though. The whole book is no holds barred. Like he is willing to I name wouldn't go people. That far. I think he, he names people by that. He had disagreements with that were led to them being fired or, you know, something bad happening to them in their, in their career. And he was not afraid to name names and, and just put it all out there. 
If you, um, so David Short and I both listened to the Bill Simmons podcast, and I really like Bill Simmons because Bill Simmons, uh, he, he doesn't pull any punches. And it was kind of an interesting podcast to listen to because Iger formerly was Bill Simmons' boss, I think, before he got fired. Um, but uh, Iger on the podcast admits that he removed a lot of content from the book shortly before publishing. Some of it, Iger on that podcast, I'll hear from. I want to hear Short's perspective on it. He was like really careful with his words, but it kind of seemed as though he did pull some punches. He did pull back on some criticisms of people. But yeah, in general, uh, not only you, Kopech, but also Bill Simmons thought he he was surprised by um, kind of how candid uh, Iger was in the book. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think, and I was surprised to hear that as well, because I agree with Kopech that the book comes across as very forthright. But that statement made it clear that he did, uh, you know, in the the final throes of, of the publishing, uh, acknowledge that he read through the whole thing, rewrote some of it and, you know, cut a significant amount of material. And so, you know, who knows if that was just not good content or whatever. But I agree that it's probably likely that, I mean, he was still the CEO of one of the you know largest companies in the world. And so I'm sure he had to be a little bit careful about what he said, especially about, you know, people who are currently board members, things like that. Did Jobs uh, set him up with Ike Perlmutter and Marvel? Yeah. So what happened there, and we'll get to Marvel in a second, but he wanted the guy who was head of Marvel to trust him, Iger. And so he asked Jobs, even though Jobs like told him straight up, I don't like comic books and I don't like superhero movies. He's like, but can you please vouch for us to Marvel so that Marvel will feel comfortable that when they buy us, Disney won't destroy us. And so Jobs was willing to do him that favor. He called up the CEO of Marvel. And then after that, the CEO of Marvel felt a lot more comfortable with being acquired by Disney. Yeah, I have the quote here. It was, he said, later after we closed the deal, Ike told me that he'd still had doubts and the call from Steve made a big difference to him. He said, you were true to your word, Ike said. I was grateful that Steve was willing to do it as a friend, really, more than as the most influential member of the board. Every once in a while, I would say to him, I have to ask you this. You're our largest shareholder. And he would always respond, you can't think of me as that. That's insulting. I'm just a good friend. But do you believe that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I can see how Steve Jobs wanted to maintain the creative integrity of Pixar. But Ike Perlmutter is like an ex-Massad agent. He's not Stan Lee, like... uh, I was a little bit confused by that. So he didn't give the same terms to Marvel that he did to Pixar. So I think the point was just that what he did commit to with Steve, he did hold through. And with Ike, he wasn't going to be willing to commit to all of the same things. But what he did commit to, he did honor. Yeah, but it's like you're Ike Perlmutter. You're the head head of Marvel. You're like, oh, Disney's calling me. Not going to return that phone call. I can't trust Disney. Unless like Steve Jobs gives him the A-OK. It just doesn't really make sense. It seems much more likely that Ike at that time did not want to sell. Or maybe he, he didn't want, he was playing hard to get or something like that. I just find it weird that Iger was asserting that it was about like maintaining artistic creativity. And he had to have the rubber stamp from Jobs. But who knows? Maybe I don't know how these big deals get done. I think if somebody like Steve Jobs calls you, that is going to have an impact on you. I, I don't know that. I think it's overplayed in the book. I don't think like probably that was such a big factor. But I certainly think that if somebody who is world respected like that calls you about an issue, you're going to consider what they say very seriously. The reality distortion field. He was just like, you're going to sell Marvel to Disney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. 
we, we talked a bit about how the Pixar acquisition happened. Why did they need to acquire Pixar? So why couldn't they just keep doing deals with Pixar like they had for the previous 10 years? Um, why did they need Pixar as part of Disney? So we talked about it a little bit already, but Disney animation had really been struggling. And so it was not just about the you know future Pixar movies, but it was about getting the creative blood uh, from Pixar into Disney and having... I'm going to forget their names again, but John and Ed be the leaders of Disney animation was critical to turning that around. And, and Disney animation has had a lot of successes uh, since then, you know, obviously whatever frozen and whatnot being the, the most recent ones. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that's the first big acquisition and it shows that Iger could make a uh, acquisition happen. Well, and we started talking about the Marvel acquisition. What was the impetus for the Marvel acquisition? Why acquire Marvel? Correct me if I'm wrong. I just, I thought he, he just wanted to acquire it for the content, no? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, when he took over as CEO, he talked about how before he was going to become CEO, he had to interview with the board, I don't know, it was like 40 times or something, you know, the whole board several times and each individual board member and some of the board members multiple times. But he had this core vision, which was essentially one content, two technology, and three global reach. And so I think the acquisitions that he has all kind of line up within those to some degree, mostly around content. And so, you know, Marvel, I think, was a, a pure content play. The interesting thing about it, though, was how complex the content agreements were at the time. And it probably was a little bit more difficult to convince the board and whatnot because Marvel already had signed a lot of deals where I forget the exact details, but I think it's Sony and Fox had various characters locked up. So, you know, the X Men and Spider Man and. I'm going to forget what what other Marvel characters had, ar had already been sold away. And so that still continued to be the case, and I, I think still continues to be the case to this, to this day to some extent. But they realized that there's sort of this treasure trove of all these other characters that even if the most popular ones were, you know, having mediocre movies being made by other studios, there were just so many different characters in the Marvel Universe. And with Kevin Feige from... Marvel, they did come up with this concept of the MCU and sort of building towards that, you know, ultimate Avengers and Endgame, I guess, was ultimately a culmination of, I don't know what it is, you have probably around 15 years or something of or 10, 10 years of, of content. It's amazing how much revenue they're making out of each of these Marvel movies. I think he said something like the average revenue is something like a billion dollars per Marvel movie that they've put out since the acquisition. And they don't even need to be great movies. There's a line in the book where Steve Jobs was asked by Iger, oh, what did you think about Iron Man 2? And he like went to see it with his son just for like Iger. And he thought it was like terrible. And uh, but then like Iger's like, well, you're not the target demographic. I'm not the target demographic either. So maybe the two of you can tell me if, the, if any of them are actually good movies, because I trust your opinion more than I trust the critics. But th these characters just have incredible value on their own, regardless of how good the content is around them, it seems. Uh, yeah. If you think about it, right, like every four and five year old kid just loves Spider-Man and that kid grows up. And even if he doesn't remain obsessed with Spider-Man, he will he might like take a flyer on those movies. And I think you, you can see it in, in the industry over the past 20 years. Just we have sequel after sequel remake of of comic book um, character after comic book character, because it's almost like a riskless way to make money. So few of those films have failed. 
Um, so I guess Iger saw the, the even though that those those assets were highly priced, they were still I guess underpriced. And I, I would guess that Iger was somewhat buoyed over the growth in international cinema. You have like literally billions of people in China who got to go to movie theaters. Kind of, I don't want to say for the first time, but between 2005 and 2020. Um, a lot of Chinese consumers were going to movie theaters for this first time. And unlike so many other American products, that was something that we could actually export to that country. That's a great point, Molson. I hadn't even really thought about it, but I think the international market is a really critical component of it. I don't think every Marvel movie is phenomenal, but I think some of them are quite good, actually. To, to be frankly honest, Iron Man 2 is probably the worst one. So it is kind of funny that that was the one that Steve happened to see and uh, told you know, told Iger it's crap or whatever it was. But the whole body of Marvel movies, I would say on average are pretty good. There, you know, certainly are some misses, but there's a reason that they're generating billions of dollars. Now, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily masterpieces that are going to be studied in film school extensively, but Endgame probably is. The, the whole concept of bringing together all these different characters and over these series of movies, it basically turned, you know, movies into TV in some ways. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty innovative approach. I don't remember if they had that whole thing planned out when they were doing the acquisitions or whether that sort of came together after the you know success of Iron Man and some of the other movies. But the whole body of work coming out of that has been, you know, really astounding. And to Molson's point, it gives them an opportunity in the international markets that a lot of other content doesn't. So for instance, with Iron Man 2, there is this like Chinese character, or maybe it was Iron Man 3, I forget, but he's like in maybe one minute of the movie or something, if you watch the American version, but in the Chinese version, he's like one of the heroes. They added like 20 minutes of content. So there's like a Chinese star of the movie as well. And so, you know, with those Marvel movies, they were able to do some of that as well to really tailor the content to the the global market. And another thing they've done with the franchise is bring it to new demographics. It's something that Iger talks quite a bit about, including having a female lead and also the movie Black Panther, which cut across some demographics that Disney hadn't been getting to before. So they've been able to increase their demographic base, I guess, through Marvel. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. The yeah, Captain Marvel and Black Panther both were, I guess, multi or, you know, maybe not multi, but over a billion dollar box offices. Although I would say I thought Captain Marvel was pretty terrible, but Black Panther is a great movie. I would, I would say, Kopech, if you're looking for a Marvel movie to watch, that would probably be the one I would recommend. You know, I, that was one of the only superhero movies I've ever seen, and I couldn't quite follow what was going on. But that's probably because I wasn't I'm just not quick enough with with uh, films. There is a lot of sort of pre-existing content that it is referencing and stuff too. So there is, there is a little bit of a difficulty of if you haven't watched everything, you don't necessarily understand all that's going on, but um, it's it's a very fast movie as well. So I, I don't follow you. It's probably just that I, I lost interest because I just don't believe in superheroes. But anyway, after all that, Pixar, Marvel, he keeps going. It's just amazing. He's the acquisition machine. And the next big purchase is Lucasfilm. This is, of course, George Lucas's company that created the Star Wars franchise. And interestingly, Steve Jobs is kind of weaved in here again, because Steve had bought Pixar originally from George Lucas. And now here they are going to be coming together all at Disney again. So why did Disney want to purchase Lucasfilm and what value did it bring to Disney? So same thing, right? The Lucasfilm acquisition was a combination of Pixar and Marvel. I 
don't think that did Lucasfilm have a lot of like uh, 3D special effects people? Was yes. that part of it, it? Did but isn't Pixar also kind of like a spinoff of Lucasfilm? It is. Yeah, we were just talking about that. But so, they maintained like some of that like ability, but that really wasn't the main reason why Disney was making the purchase, right? Right. So a famous part of Lucasfilm was Industrial Light and Magic, and they are a special effects like powerhouse that not only created stuff for the Star Wars franchise, but for tons of films by famous films that we would all know from other movie houses. So to my mind, Lucasfilm is just a combination of the Pixar and Marvel acquisitions. So they're buying Lucasfilm for the content, basically. They're, they're, yeah, like Kopech said about Industrial Light and Magic, but I don't think that deal gets done without Star Wars. They're buying it for the content. And then the second thing that they're buying... The, the other way that this is the, the acquisition of Lucasfilm is a combination of Pixar and Marvel is that it was very important to George Lucas that his creation, Star Wars, maintained its integrity, um, kind of in the same way that Steve Jobs was really concerned when he sold Pixar. To me, that didn't really make sense because as far as I know, uh, George Lucas released that movie with Jar Jar Banks, so... Its integrity had been lost, but other than that, yeah, sure. Let's let's buy Lucasfilm. And is there anything else out there for Bob Iger to not buy? You know, like is there anything else? I don't get it. We haven't even gotten to the biggest one yet, so hold your horses, okay? But but Lucasfilm, right? Uh, George Lucas was relinquishing control of the Star Wars franchise. They they took his number two. Kathleen Kennedy became a part of Disney and continues to be involved with what were the previous Lucasfilm franchises. But George Lucas himself, he had to actually sit, give up creative control over Star Wars after like 30 years, 40 years, 40 years probably, right? The original Star Wars came out in 1976. And he was not thrilled with some of the directions that Disney took Star Wars after he gave them the, the franchise. And he was public about it. And that kind of caused some tension between him and Iger and of course, it's like your baby, right? If you're running the same franchise for 40 years and you're the one that decided all the creative decisions and then you suddenly just have no ability to control it at all, you're going to probably not be thrilled with every decision they make. So if I remember correctly, George Lucas said that selling his, his baby effectively to Disney was like selling it to a white slave trader, which I don't even understand, but... Uh, that's what he said on Larry King, uh, which is a famous uh, show for people who don't know, maybe. And uh, he later apologized to Bob Iger for making that comment, which I still don't really understand, especially in the context of, you know, George Lucas under, you know, basically promising not to disparage, promising not in contract, but kind of uh, in person to not disparage Disney. The whole thing just didn't really make sense to me. And, and again, that Jar Jar Binks movie was terrible. So I, I just don't understand it. It is interesting because for George, the hardest part was the relinquishing control, but he ultimately did agree to do it. And then once he did, <laughs> I think he ultimately regretted it a little bit. I think he's probably okay with where things are. But I, th I think the part that he was really upset about was that he had had three ideas for future movies and they bought those ideas as part of the deal. They did not agree that they were going to make them, but he sort of assumed that the fact that they paid him for them meant that they really wanted them. And then they went with, you know, J.J. Abrams and you know, the subsequent, you know, future. Uh, I don't know what the name of the, the subsequent trilogy is, but anyway, the, the, the three new canon films. OK, so 
we got through the content deals, Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm. Then there's the grand strategy move. This is really recent. Disney buys Fox. Why did Disney buy Fox? What was Iger's thinking there? Well, I, to be honest, I don't know. So Fox had a bunch of different assets, right? So they had the sports assets, which they divested because of regular, possible regulatory conflicts because uh, Disney owns ESPN. And then there were, it was like, there were the movie assets, Fox searchlight pictures and stuff like that. And then the third type of assets, I guess, is Fox News, which Disney did not want to own because uh, like Twitter, which is something else that Bob Iyer tried and ultimately decided not to buy, um, it, it was just kind of like a, a politically correct hot potato type of thing that he didn't want to buy. So I guess they just bought the movie assets. Like what, what are some examples of like movie assets that they were buying? Or, and they also bought international Fox stuff too. Like, and I think Fox is pretty powerful internationally. Yeah, so there's a lot of distribution assets that Fox has that they did get as part of the deal. So I think um, like 20% of Sky, one of the largest uh, satellite and cable providers in Europe. I think like the largest direct-to-consumer Indian uh, streaming technology, a couple of, of those types of assets. And then there's also the the TV studio and production as well. So they got, you know, all of the Simpsons back catalog. They got what are other, you know, Fox assets? The, the TV channel FX, they got um, Searchlight Pictures that did great films like 12 Years a Slave, Slumdog Millionaire, etc. Uh, so all kinds of movie and TV assets. Always sunny in Philadelphia. Guess that's okay for Disney. Yeah, it seems like Fox was basically just a mini Disney, right? I mean, it didn't have the the parks, I guess. But outside of that, it was like a fairly comparable, you know, conglomerate of different media assets that, you know, had, had a lot of, you know, synergies in terms of, I, th- I think that was basically the the real thought is that we can smash these two things together. And, and rather, I mean, one, you do get a lot of additional content, which is great, but you get a lot of efficiencies on, you know, you don't need the same shared finance office and stuff like that for a lot of these studios and whatnot. Yeah, he, he totally mentioned that this was an efficiency play, that this was about how can we eliminate duplication and get even grander scale by putting these two together. Did you know that Disney has 33.5% of the U.S.-Canada market share of major film studios? I did not. Throwing that out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit confused as to kind of what these non-television channel assets are, but it's just like another thing that Bob Iger bought. I think that the BAM acquisition is more interesting than Fox. Yeah, that's a great point. I agree. The um, The BAM technology was another thing that he brought up. It was a much smaller acquisition, so it's probably why I didn't didn't make your list, Kopech. But they had originally, I think, been part of the MLB, and they'd built technology to stream baseball games. And then Disney had invested some small amount to have a minority stake in the business and then had an option to purchase the rest of it. But they actually exercised it, like, or I mean, they bought it before the option even even came about. So they they acquired the whole business. And that was really about ultimately building out ESPN Plus and then, you know, Disney Plus, which is probably the last big uh, success of Iger's career before he stepped down. So prior to actually buying fully BAM, which allowed them to come out with ESPN Plus, is that what it's called? And Disney Plus, uh, Iger flirted with purchasing Twitter and kind of like left them at the altar. What do you guys think of that? 
I think that Iger mentioned he didn't end up purchasing Twitter because he didn't want to deal with some of the free speech controversies around Twitter. Like, is Twitter a platform that should be regulating its content or is it kind of a marketplace of ideas where uh, as a pseudo public forum, whatever people want to do should basically just be allowed? I think that it's difficult for a company with such a friendly family image like Disney to try to navigate free speech issues. And so I totally understand why he didn't want to purchase them regardless of whether or not it was a good business opportunity. And I probably would have done the same if I were him. To me, it was like, why are you even thinking about buying Twitter? I mean, like his stated goal was like technology, presumably for like with the intention of distributing video. And it was like, oh, maybe I'll just buy Twitter because they know how to distribute video. It was just very confusing to me as to why they even entertained that idea. The, the BAM acquisition made a ton of sense, and I'm super bullish on Disney because of it or because of the success that they've had in the area subsequently. I think Jack was on the Disney board even maybe. So, yeah, I agree. It seemed very strange when I, I had not heard about it at all. I don't know if it was public knowledge that this acquisition happened or, you know, the, the attempted acquisition. And they say it was literally the, the last minute. It was, you know, the day before they were going to announce it, he called up Jack and said, yeah, I'm not doing it. Um, and they'd, you know, they'd agreed on all the terms and the dollar amounts and all of that. But I don't know why you would buy Twitter for streaming technology. I mean, they, I guess, bought Periscope and stuff. I'm sure they do have some of those assets to be able to do that, but it's clearly not their core competency by any means. And I think it was the, the right move to not buy it because I do think that, uh, to Kopech's point, Disney is in a, a relatively unique position in America right now where we're, you know, very polarized and you don't want to, you know, shut off half your audience by being seen as, you know, liberal or conservative. So, you know, Bob Iger himself has sort of backed off on a lot. I think he, he's currently an independent. I think it's probably likely that he will end up, you know, running for some office now that he's stepped down, but did make him even himself, you know, more apolitical because it was important for the Disney brand. Yeah. I mean, that's also why it was so smart of him to take Fox News out of the Fox deal, because Disney, like you said, really is a brand that I think appeals equally to conservatives and liberals. And anything that's going to throw that into question uh, is not worth it, no matter what the business case. He does frame it as Rupert never would have sold Fox News. You know, it was his crown jewel and he never would have done it. But I think you're probably right. I think he probably didn't want it, even if it would have been on the table. Wasn't it also Fox News wasn't regulatory, but he couldn't own Fox like he can. I forget what that's called. You know, like the basic satellite and not satellite. Like antenna you can't channels. own two over the air channels. Yeah. The the networks have to be independently owned. I would say that I, I think there's in, increasing conservative distrust of Disney. But question for you guys, Bob Iger, lucky or good? I think he was good. I mean, Disney was really struggling when he came in. It's largely because of some pretty incredible acquisitions, but I think he had to take on a lot of personal responsibility and put a lot of effort into making those things happen. And I don't think it was what the company was going to do if someone else had been put in charge. So I, I, I think he did a great job. Do you respect it? Do I respect him? Was that the question? No, I, sorry. Like, do you, do you respect how he went about doing it? I don't know. It's yeah, I guess for my own personal views, I would kind of prefer that you, you know, build the business yourself and, you know, create success through actually building good products, not buying great products that other people have for, you know, less money than they should have paid for it. But I I do, you know, respect the, you know, hit after hit in terms of those acquisitions. It'd be one thing if it had just been Pixar, 
but you know Marvel and Lucasfilms I was pretty shocked when I saw the numbers you know the 4 billion 6 billion whatever it was on the different ones and it turned out to be you know worth far far more than that once they had Disney behind them yeah i mean so i don't have a way of answering your question molson because this book does not give insight into what it was like day to day running disney during his 15 years as ceo it's so focused on the acquisitions that it doesn't really tell us how he met or what he, even what other challenges existed beyond doing these acquisitions. I mean, each of the acquisitions, well, Pixar certainly solved some kind of problem that they had. And it was obvious to me that Pixar acquisition was totally obvious. He made it sound in the book like it was some kind of like crazy idea. And he was so afraid to approach Steve with the idea because he wasn't sure how he would react. But to me, I mean, it was so obvious. I mean, Pixar was the one having these big hits the last 10 years. Disney animation was not doing well. They already had a relationship through distribution of the Pixar films. Let's bring in Pixar to fix Disney animation. That's obvious to me. Obvious, but he had to swallow a lot of Disney corporate pride in order to do that, right? And there was still the chance that the board, particularly like Walt, like Walt Disney's descendants, I'm sure were like, Roy Disney, yeah. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Like Disney can't do it itself? But there was also a lot of pressure on him from the board to fix the the Pixar relationship, right? That Eisner had left in tatters. Mm-hmm. And sure. so I, I, they, I don't think the board was really against this. They said there were like one or two people who were kind of on the fence about it. But also on top of all of that, Pixar just is this like once in a, I don't know, once in a generation studio, right? It's not... It's not like they were buying something that had any kind of doubts about whether they were creative powerhouses, right? So, I mean, it, it was a no-brainer to me. So I, I didn't think about it as like some brilliant move or something buying Pixar. Now, the fact that he got the deal done and that he built a good relationship with Steve Jobs, that speaks to his people skills. Um, but, but I didn't think like strategically it really told me anything about what kind of great decision maker he is. I think one of the reasons he might not have been so tied to the Disney ethos, as you were saying, is because he came up through ABC, right? So most of his career was actually at ABC. He'd only been at Disney for like 10 years, but he had been at ABC before that for like 20 years. So he wasn't so like invested maybe in Disney animation in the same way that maybe Michael Eisner was. I feel like I have a good question for you guys. Um, you guys probably have both listened to the Naval podcast, or maybe this, I'm not sure if this is featured in his podcast, but you certainly tweeted out many times. So one of the things that Naval is famous for, and I'm forgetting the exact percentages, but he says is like something like 90 to 95% of all time spent working is wasted. Is that a justifiable reason, in a sense, for... Bob Iger not explaining what it was like to be the day-to-day CEO at Disney. So said another way, does his like internal people management skills matter if he makes these fantastic acquisitions? So I kind of disagree. I think that he did talk about what it was like. He just didn't focus on it for extended periods. So I think it's really the preface where he tries to like frame it of like, it's just crazy and every day is completely different. And it's all about compartmentalization because there's going to be some giant fire burning somewhere on any given day. And my job is to make sure that the right people are focused on it because I can't do everything and I need to be able to, you know, switch from one thing to the next. And so the, you know, whole story of opening Shanghai Disney while simultaneously dealing with 
uh, first the fact that the you know Pulse nightclub shooter was apparently trying to attack Disney World, and then shortly thereafter they find out that an, an alligator attacked a, a child at Disney World, and so you know having to convert Disney to you know a less dangerous for alligators place. While at the same time, you know, smiling and putting on a good show for, um, you know, Chinois and whatnot was just, you know, probably what his day to day is a lot of the time. It's just it's a lot of crazy different stuff that you're dealing with. And it's a lot of boring personnel meetings that, you know, we don't really need to hear about necessarily. But he did change the structure. He took I think the most important thing he did probably was break down strat planning, right? I think Disney would have failed if they continued to try to be managed by a bunch of MBAs and spreadsheets on what the future is going to be because everything is just a lot more fragmented and whatnot now. And you needed to bet on leaders with vision. And, and he did that. And it seems to have succeeded pretty well. Well, I'm glad you brought up the preface because the preface is really excellent. And that was the one part of the book where I do think I really got a sense, okay, here's what it's like to be CEO of Disney. But then the rest of the book, I didn't. I don't know what a day in his life is like. I know you're saying it's like all over the place, but is he spending more of his time in meetings? Is he spending most of his time doing strategic thinking? Is he spending most of his time thinking about finance? Like, what does he do with his day? What does he do with his time to manage this this incredibly large corporation? I didn't get a sense of that other than in the preface. I also like so Disney has two hundred and six thousand employees. I think that was the number that he cited in the book and he was selected to be CEO. And while he does like kind of explain how he took ownership of a mistake with Rune Artledge, I was still kind of confused about what day-to-day activities allowed him to rise to the top in that, in that way. He seems like some sort of like people master, but I don't know if I got a better sense of him being really good with people listening to his podcast with Bill Simmons than I did from the book. So Michael Ovitz was one little interesting aside where he had been hired by Eisner um, after having founded, I believe it's CAA, one of the one of the big uh, agencies. And so they brought him in and he was supposed to be sort of the heir apparent and ultimately take over Disney. And Iger says, like, this guy just had no clue. And the thing he really focused on was time management. So I, I have a quote here, which is, once he took a call in my office from President Clinton, talking with him for 45 minutes while I sat outside. A call from Tom Cruise interrupted another meeting. Martin Scorsese ended a third just minutes after it started. Meeting after meeting was either canceled, rescheduled, or abbreviated. And soon every top executive at Disney was whispering behind his back about what a disaster he was. Managing your own time and respecting others' time is one of the most vital things to do as a manager, and he was horrendous at it. So I think he probably is in meetings the vast majority of his time, and he does respect you know, the people that are reporting to him and whatnot. And he doesn't interrupt it just because, you know, Obama calls. I do remember in the part of the book where he talked about how it's, I think this was said in the book, I'm blurring the book and the podcast together, but he talks in the book about how it's important to like solicit um, potentially negative feedback from your recruits for the people who work under you. And kind of like, if you don't do that over time, especially if you've been working at Disney for like 15 years, people just don't question you at all. And they just kind of like view you as this like dictator. It Once I listened to the podcast, I really got a sense of why he had to do that because he seemed very, I don't know what the right word was, but in the podcast, he just seemed very dominant in a way. Just, I don't want to say controlling. I don't want to say domineering, but just like almost like this weird master of the universe. You know, usually Bill Simmons is able to take control of an interview or like move it around, but like not with Bob Iger. Bob Iger was like controlling that interview 100%. 
probably something about the fact that he used to be his boss. Be his I mean, boss, they, yeah. it wasn't directly his boss, but you know, the his boss's 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 boss or whatever. Okay, so we've talked a bit about what we got out of the book. What did Iger want his readers to get out of the book? So what are some of the key lessons he was trying to inculcate throughout the book? The importance of being optimistic came up over and over again. And that was a big takeaway for me. Like people don't want to follow a pessimistic leader. So it's important to be realistic, but your your realism needs to be infused with optimism. So if something bad happens, you can say, hey, we're in a tough situation, but you know, we have the people and we have the capabilities to get it done. The <laughs> The other thing, I guess, maybe I'm cynical, but notwithstanding his like potential candor, uh, it seems like Bob Iger wanted you to know that Bob Iger is like pretty darn great. <laughs> yeah, I have a couple of different things that I sort of uh, jotted down. Um, one was, um, you know, own your mistakes. He had this anecdote about uh, Rune Arledge asking who had screwed something up and, you know, the room is silent and he just raised his hand and took ownership and everyone else couldn't believe he'd done that. But, you know, I think, I think it's, it's true. Most people don't do that. So, you know, important, um, outworking everyone was a big thing that he, he brought up over and over again, that you know, he just had a, a strong work ethic. He was going to be there before and, you know, stay till it was done. And, you know, he didn't care about how hard he had to work. He was always going to make, make sure he was the one that was working the hardest. He talked a lot about balancing demand for excellence with caring about your people. And so sort of Rune was just basically comes across as kind of mean versus what Bob took away from that was you do need to demand excellence, but at the same time, you need to recognize that, you know, people are going to make mistakes and whatnot, and you need to actually care about them and sort of focus on their success, not just on, you know, the the best outcome for your customers and whatnot. So be, you know, understanding of their actual you know human needs, acknowledge what you don't know, don't sell trombone oil was one that came up a couple times. I thought that was actually a really interesting one, which is just that uh, I forget who it was, but one of his managers at one point had, had told him the story or, or pr printed something out about it, which is that, you know, you could be the most successful trombone oil salesman in the world, but they only sell, you know, one quart of trombone oil a year. So it doesn't matter. Like you need to go after businesses that are going to actually be big enough to really make a, a dent in the bottom line. Yeah, I think that's the mentality of a huge corporation like Disney. If you're a small business, you're thrilled if you find a niche that you can really dominate, right? If it's trombone, trombone oil or whatever it is. Uh, but if you're Disney, like, yeah, like you can't be preoccupied spending your time on some little niche. Okay, so do we recommend this book? Is this a book that we, everyone should read or is this a book for just some readers? And what's it, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up because it's such an easy read. It, it's like, I thought it was quite well written. It keeps you entertained, but just kind of a little bit confusing and underwhelming in terms of like the business lessons it imparted. And a lot of those business lessons, excluding the, you know, it, everyone knows like admitting your own mistakes is important. And I think that the trombone oil, I, I feel like everyone kind of understands that as well. Like, you know, you want to have a large total addressable market, but a lot of this book was kind of done even though it was really well-written, much more better written than the book that I'm about to mention, it was kind of done a little bit haphazardly in terms of addressing business lessons. So kind of towards the end of the book, he just like dumps a bunch of lessons in without giving much thought as to how it relates to the individual stories. And that reminded me of the Ross Perot book. Yeah, I would also recommend it. I agree that it was really well written. It's just a fun read. You could probably finish it on a plane ride. It's you know only a 
190 pages, I think, or something like that. In terms of who should read it, it is more of a, a lot of the books that we've read have been sort of founders, and this is kind of the opposite, right? He sort of worked his way up from an entry-level position to becoming the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world, but he was never, he never really created anything from scratch. He always was, you know, building someone else's business. And so that was a, an interesting, different perspective to have. But I think it does mean that if, if you're, you know, planning on being a solo founder, this has probably a lot less relevance to you unless, I don't know, you're, <laughs> you're already an employee 1,000 and you're worrying about how to grow to 200,000 or something like that. There's a little bit more on the sort of full corporate structure changes and whatnot than, than other things that we've read. And so I thought that was, again, interesting to read, but a, a little bit less relevant for solo founders, which, um, you know, I, I would hope to be at one point. Yeah. So personally, I would recommend it to, again, because it's an easy read, like both of you said, and also because I agree with both of you, it's really well written. So props to Bob Iger. He did a really great job writing the book. I think it's relevant to people who are interested in mergers and acquisitions, obviously, because it covers these huge mergers and acquisitions. And that's kind of where the focus is for the second half of the book. It's much more about that than it is about the day-to-day at Disney. I would also recommend this book to people who are interested in the film and television industries and maybe understanding a little bit about what the people relationships are like at the top um, and just a little bit of history in there too about those industries. So uh, for people in television, film, or interested in mergers and acquisitions, this is a really, really good read. Okay, so our book for next month is Iacocca, an autobiography by Lee Iacocca. So Lee Iacocca was the legendary designer at Ford who came out with some of their best-known models of kind of the 60s and 70s. And then he became the CEO of Chrysler, and he totally turned that company around, and it became something of like a business celebrity in 1980s America. And this biography, that autobiography that came out in the mid-80s became a bestseller and was you know really lauded in the just general publishing community, but also the business community for years and years after it came out. So looking forward to reading that. Is there anything that either of you want to plug? And if not, how can listeners get in touch with you? I don't know if this is a plug, but I want to make two recommendations. The first recommendation is that I think that if you are all at all interested in this book or Disney, any of these topics, you should definitely watch or listen to the, the podcast between Bill Simmons and Bob Iger. Uh, I already talked about that, so I'll move to another recommendation. I think that for people who really want to get an in-depth understanding of Disney and media, you need to watch the YouTube interviews with this guy named John Malone. That guy, like, uh, he's just like next level when it comes to explaining the different competitive advantages. When it, like explaining things like why it's important for all these distributors like Comcast and stuff like that to start acquiring content assets. And yeah, John Malone's the man. He gets like real deep and he'll make your brain hurt by, uh, I don't know, turning it in knots with all his business thinking. Those are great recommendations. I'll definitely take a look at those John Malone videos. I would also mention that Bob Iger was interviewed by some other podcast hosts as well. I haven't watched all of them, but I believe Oprah interviewed him. Tim Ferriss interviewed him. So a lot of the sort of most popular people were interested in, in hearing his thoughts as the book came out. And you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And I'm going to plug that I'm going to be on my publisher's Twitch channel. April 9th at 7 p.m., I'll be answering questions about the Classic Computer Science Problem series. And you can reach me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Okay, it's been great having everyone here this month. 
We look forward to seeing you again next month. And don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice, whether that be iTunes, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, giving us a rating. Of course, we hope it's a good rating. Really helps us out. Have a great month.